Educational technology, commonly referred to as edtech, is an increasingly dynamic space that fosters innovation in schools and provides solutions to some of today's most pressing educational issues. From the advent of high-speed broadband internet to schools across the nation, to the entrance of iPads into our kindergartners' hands, the nature of education promises to undergo massive transformations in the coming years. To learn more about this space and the role venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, and investors can play in shaping the future of education, Ivy co-CEO Barry Merrick sat down with Amit Patel, an education expert and partner at Owl Ventures. Owl Ventures is an edtech-focused venture capital firm that invests in the world's leading technology companies, backing entrepreneurs with solutions that meaningfully drive improvement in student achievement. Amit offered his insights on the importance of education and the challenges that educators face today. He believes the private sector plays a critical role in offering students cutting-edge tools and strategies to improve educational achievement across the board, from early learning in K-12 all the way up to higher education and lifelong learning for our nation's workforce. What EdTech is going to allow uh, teachers and students to do is concentrate on the moments that matter the most and uh, really start to focus on that rather than some of the routine tasks that take up a lot of time but don't add necessarily a lot of value. Please enjoy our conversation with Amit Patel. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy the Social University. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Hey everybody, we're here with Amit Patel from Owl Ventures. Welcome Amit. Thank you. How are you today? Great, yeah. How are you doing? I'm so good. Yeah. I'm excited for this conversation. We're going to be talking about the future of education and uh, really taking a deep dive into how tech ventures and entrepreneurs and investors look at the space. So. Amit, you've had a fascinating journey, and to get us started, it would be actually great to hear your story and how you came to be involved in the space. Sounds good. Uh, I'll give you the short version of it. <laughs> um, so, kind of been in the education space in various roles for about 10 years now. Um, so, originally started in the education space by starting a tutoring company uh, that was based out of Texas. So, um, was really passionate about the space because I had started working for other tutoring companies and kind of what I, I didn't see was um, this motivation or mission in those tutoring companies to kind of help the learners become self-sufficient. Um, and it was almost the opposite that a lot of these tutoring companies were going for, where they wanted the learners to become dependent on their services. So students wouldn't start their homework unless the tutor showed up, or they didn't have the confidence to think that they were able to kind of complete whatever uh, they were trying to do without the tutor being there. And I actually wanted to approach the space from the opposite direction, which was, hey, uh, let's set up a plan to kind of say, when are you going to unsubscribe from our services? And so um, I think that was uh, refreshing for parents to hear. Um, and uh, it was great. And so that was kind of my entry point to the uh, education 
uh, sector. And then from there, uh, I went to Mathnasium, which was an after-school math learning center for kids. Um, and so I started their quality assurance program. Uh, Mathnasium has kind of grown uh, quite a bit since, uh, since those early days. I think they now have close to 750 plus locations in the United States and several countries around the world. Um, and then from there, I went to Success Academy Charter Schools here in uh, New York City. Um, and they're a charter school network with, I think it's now over 40 schools. And so uh, I was the director of technology for them. Um, so I would say kind of a, a good preparation for the role that I play now at OWL because uh, a lot of the ed tech companies that we back, I was the customer that they were pitching to. Uh, so I got to pilot, um, implement, and build kind of ed tech solutions within the Success Academy network. And currently, I'm a partner at Owl Ventures, and we're a education technology-focused venture capital fund. Great. What makes Owl Ventures different, in your view? Um, so I think uh, a few things. Um, so one, uh, if you're looking at kind of the general venture capital landscape, uh, we are a specialist that's exclusively focused on this area. Um, you know, I think uh, because of that, uh, we're able to add a lot of value to our portfolio companies as well as our entrepreneurs and support them in a way that um, kind of is only possible when you're looking at this space 100% of the time. Uh, so that's one thing that we, uh, we really value. I think that's also allowed us to build up a network of you know, our LPs or um, other advisors or other folks um, that are kind of looking at this space and uh, our ability to help our companies kind of recruit talent to this space, uh, I think is unique because people recognize that, hey, OWL is the place that we go to when we want to discuss education technology. Um, and then I think the third thing um, is kind of the scale of the funding that we're willing to do. Um, I think uh, there's not a lot of investors that are willing to uh, lead Series A and B rounds in the education technology sector, and uh, we are one of the, the few investment firms that are willing to not only invest in that round, but also lead those types of rounds. So. Okay, amazing. Yeah. So to help us kind of zoom out, in your words, why would you say, why is education important from your perspective? Um, yeah. And what have been the trends that have led to the challenges that the sector is facing today, and how are private sector companies looking to tackle them? Yeah, so that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, so I'll start off with a personal view on that matter. Um, I think personally, uh, education uh, is very important to me and has been, I guess, near and dear to my heart um, because of my parents' journey. Uh, my parents immigrated to the United States um, I think I saw kind of the impact and uh, the improvement that they were able to make in their lives. And whenever I asked my mom and dad, like, kind of what led to that, they always pointed to education. Um, and so I think from a very young age, it was instilled in me that, like, education is an extremely uh, powerful tool that you can use um, to kind of achieve anything that you want in the world. Um, and so that's been something that kind of has been instilled in me from a very young age. Um, if you're talking about kind of on a more broad level, um, you know, I, I think it, it's different for every sector. So the way that we kind of look at the world um, is early education, um, kind of K-12, if you will, uh, higher education, and then lifelong learning or career mobility. Um, 
And I think there's different trends in each of those sectors that are very interesting. And so uh, I'll, I'll try to identify one maybe across, the, sure. across each of those. So early learning, what makes early learning very interesting is if you look at all of the research that's associated with early learning, um, that is, in terms of return on investment, that's the best place to kind of make an investment. And what do I specifically mean by that is um, the more uh, investment that can be made in a student's learning, um, the earlier in their uh, life, the more likely they are to show kind of uh, academic achievements or academic gains. Uh, and kind of the later uh, in life that you try to uh, maybe invest that same amount or use the same types of interventions, uh, the less likely they are to be effective, right? Uh, so things like um, kind of making sure that students read on grade level by the time they're in third grade is very important, has been shown in academic research to be kind of a significant milestone or a significant goal that uh, a lot of schools and a lot of educators uh, around the world are trying to make sure that within their own countries they're able to achieve. Um, Within the K-12 space, um, I think what makes this particularly an exciting time for education technology is this is the first time that kind of it's possible to build ed tech. Um, and what do I mean by that is that kind of even, let's say, five, seven years ago, uh, there wasn't high-speed broadband internet connection in most of the K-12 schools. Uh, there wasn't devices, right, uh, where students actually had access to devices or one-to-one -one ratio of device to students. There might have been like a computer lab where students went to and maybe they got to interact with the computer one hour a week or maybe one hour every other week or something like that. Um, and kind of if you were building an ed tech company, uh, in terms of the software, you had to install it on a local server or maybe you were sending CD-ROMs to the schools and they were kind of uh, uploading local copies on the computer. And so kind of imagining how to build an ed tech company uh, in that world uh, would be quite challenging, right? And so uh, in the past few years, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that have been working on this, uh, making sure that uh, high-speed broadband internet uh, is being um, is being installed in all of the schools. Um, the federal government has p played a huge role in this. They've invested over $10 billion uh, in making sure that all of the schools are getting wired. And uh, now you have a situation where it went from less than 10% of schools having access to high-speed broadband to almost all schools in the United States uh, within the next few years will have access to high-speed broadband internet. So that's a phenomenally fast trend that has kind of allowed ed tech entrepreneurs to create companies in a way that, that wasn't possible before. Um, I would say uh, in higher education and uh, lifelong learning or career mobility, uh, there's a few things uh, that have come into kind of, I think, focus, which is bridging the gap between graduating from college and then what's necessary to succeed, either in your first career immediately uh, post-college or uh, now with the fact that kind of there's this trend to almost switch careers multiple times uh, within a short period of time and the pace at which technology is moving um, there's this you know kind of what you learned in college maybe 10 years out might not actually be relevant and so how do you kind of continue to stay up to date on what you need to know got it yeah that's all right that was a lot <laughs> that was excellent that was excellent um, so what do you foresee to be the biggest opportunities uh, when you're looking forward um, what kind of companies are exciting you the most? 
Yeah. Um, so I think there's exciting companies um, across all of those sectors. Um, and um, I'll, na I'll name a few. Um, obviously, I'm partial to our portfolio. <laughs> um, but I think there's exciting companies across the board um, and, and outside our portfolio. But um, so in the early learning space, um, uh, this is actually the most recent investment that we've made at Owl Ventures, just announced a couple of weeks ago, uh, is a company called Tinker Garden. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they do is they're focused on delivering outdoor classes uh, to um, kids aged from 18 months to eight years old. And so parents sign up for these classes. Uh, they're once a week. They usually take place in a park or an outdoor area. Uh, parents attend these classes with their kids. Um, and this is a fantastic way for kids, especially if you're talking about kids that are two to three years old, to start to develop a lot of skills that will make them successful in school. And so it's things like creativity, it's things like imagination, uh, how to communicate with others and how to socialize with others. And so um, this was a company that we were really excited about um, because it's grounded in kind of developing the skills that have been shown in research to help students succeed when they do get to school. And it's delivering that in a very real way uh, for these students and for these parents. And we love the fact that they're involving the parents in, in the education of the students so that they can continue this not only while they're in the class, but also at home. Um, so that's an example of a company that we're really excited about. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so when you kind of like think about five, 10, 20 years ahead. Yeah. So 10 years ago, there were very few apps. There was very little internet in schools and computers now it's transformed. So looking now another 10, 15 years in the future, what do you think will fundamentally change about the way people think about education? Yeah, um, so I think there's, there's a few things. Um, one is a, a trend that we're, I would say, uh, at the very beginning of, which is um, personalized learning, right? So this is not uh, an idea that's necessarily new. Um, this is something that actually uh, Benjamin Bloom, a uh, famous education researcher, introduced in the 80s, which basically shows that any student, if they are given access to one-on-one -on -one tutoring and uh, there's mastery learning techniques used with that student, uh, they're uh, likely to do by uh, two sigmas better than kind of what average instructional methods use. Mm -hmm. And so what that essentially means is that um, students, a cohort of students using that type of uh, technique, 98% uh, of them will do as good, if not better, than students that are using just traditional instructional methods, right? Now, why is that hard to do? Well, uh, it's very uh, costly, right? And there's a uh, limitation if you're limited to doing that one-on-one -on -one type of interaction with the people that are close to you or it has to be done in person, right? And so I think what education technology has allowed um, kind of educators and students to do is A, drive down the cost dramatically of, of offering that type of interaction, mm -hmm. and then number two, making that virtual, right? And so I think if you're looking out 20 to 30 years, um, you know, we're just starting to offer that type of ability in certain areas and um, certain sectors of education, but I think that's gonna become something that will become the norm, where if a student is at home kind of having an issue with their homework or if it has a question or anything like that, they're going to be able to immediately kind of get that type of help um, 
And it might not necessarily be from the teacher, it might be a peer, it might be somebody that's outside of the school system, but I do think that that's going to become something that's, that's really great. I would say the second thing is kind of what is the value in uh, traditional, especially like higher education institutions, right? Um, you know, and I think uh, this is something that we've already started to see become part of the dialogue right now. Um, kind of one of the things that folks have noticed is the cost of higher education continues to skyrocket, right? Um, and so as more and more um, kind of uh, alignment starts to exist between the outcomes of higher education institutions to um, actually getting that first job or maybe getting multiple jobs. This idea of kind of maybe you're done with school after you know four years of going to undergrad or maybe a master's program, I think that's going to change, right? Like, and it's almost going to be, I think, a lifelong relationship. Uh, I'd, I'd say similar to what you guys are kind of doing. Um, where you're continuously engaging with others, you're continuously engaging with maybe professors, experts in the field, so that as you start to mature in your career and your ambitions in life, you're continuing to get that type of education that you need and deserve, right? Okay, so one of the first one you mentioned is this customized learning. The other one is this transition into, well, what does higher education look like? So maybe transforming from the traditional four-year maybe uh, four plus two year you know, degree to something more lifelong. So when you look at kind of the variance in outcomes yeah. uh, in different countries, I mean, this is what we hear in mainstream media all the time. Yeah. Finland, South Korea, they're doing great. Yeah. And then the US is kind of, you know, yeah. not, a, not top <laughs> of the pack, yeah. even despite the massive federal investment yeah. and infrastructure and so forth. What, like, to what extent, you know, are, like, what in your view are causing the differences? And can EdTech actually create more of a uniformity in outcomes? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I think there's a few things that uh, are different about some of the cases where you said, and, and the test that folks often cite in these performances, uh, uh, performance differences is the PISA test, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, I think there's a few differences. One is um, kind of how much uh, the government, at least at a federal level, uh, controls kind of the education system versus uh, it's a state level kind of controlled situation. And so in the case of the United States, um, kind of education uh, was like created at the local level and then kind of uh, moved towards a federal. Uh, I think in some of the other countries that you're mentioning, um, it's very much uh, kind of under the purview of the federal government, right? So I think that's one big difference, right? Uh, second, I would say, is kind of what type of population you're dealing with and how homogenous versus heterogeneous is that population. I mean, uh, the U.S. is kind of you know, one of the melting pots of the world, and um, you're dealing with a lot of different cultures, you're dealing with a lot of different traditions here, and uh, you're dealing with a lot of different history here. So I think those are kind of two um, differences uh, in some of the some of the areas that, uh, or some of the countries that you pointed out versus the U.S. You know, do I think that there's uh, things that the U.S. can learn from and borrow from those other countries? Uh, certainly. Um, you know, I think uh, a few of those things uh, that the U.S. can learn and 
uh, could borrow is I think those countries do a great job of kind of honoring their teachers. Um, I think making it uh, extremely attractive for uh, folks to continue teaching um, and supporting them either through kind of their higher education efforts and becoming certified as teachers or kind of becoming a lifelong teacher, right? I think the US uh, has a lot to learn from those countries and how they support the teachers here, right? Especially uh, making sure that teachers stay kind of in the profession longer than two or three years and they're dedicated to it for five, 10, 15 years. It's a really hard job and uh, a lot of folks um, leave it because of burnout and kind of uh, the kind of support uh, that's lacking like in the US compared to some of these other countries. Uh, so that's one thing I think. Uh, where I think ed tech can be extremely helpful is we don't view, at least OWL's view, is not that the teacher is going to disappear out of the equation. We don't believe that that's the case. Um, I think what ed tech is going to allow uh, teachers and students to do is concentrate on the moments that matter the most and uh, really start to focus on that rather than some of the routine tasks that take up a lot of time but don't add necessarily a lot of value. Uh, so I'll give you an example of that from uh, another one of our portfolio companies, which is called Raise.me. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they're focused on is the micro scholarship and grant area. So if you think about kind of college admissions and how the whole process works right now, um, the way that it works is you apply to school, you get in, you get a letter in the mail that says, hey Barry, you were admitted to XYZ college you uh, got you know, such and such scholarship that was endowed by so and so, right? Um, maybe you have a sense of kind of why you got that scholarship. Uh, you're like, oh, I got good grades or something like that. But you, um, you really didn't kind of, you, you don't have, it's, it's almost like a black box. You don't know exactly why it's happening, right? Uh, and so I think um, what's interesting about what Raise.me is doing is that it's created a platform where students can go uh, online, uh, they can see exactly what scholarships are available to, uh, all, now it's over 200 universities. Um, and then they can plan what they're gonna do in high school mm -hmm. to unlock those scholarships and grants. And how does this help from the educator's perspective is the ratio of high school counselors to students in the United States is one counselor for every, it's, I've, I've seen statistics, everything from 300 to 800 students, right? So if you're a high school counselor and you have 800 students that you need to meet with, like you, you really can't get beyond the basic conversation of, hey, are you thinking about college? Like what schools are you applying to? With a platform like Raise.me, you can now see kind of what schools is that student following? What scholarships have they qualified for? And so immediately when you are meeting with that student, it's a much deeper layer conversation that you're having and you're not just going over the basics kind of. You're able to engage with students in a way that hopefully has a truly uh, impact, uh, uh, impactful moment on their uh, educational outcomes. Okay, yeah. very interesting. Um, I wanna focus on, you said many interesting things there. The one that Definitely, I think everybody can resonate with is the role of teachers. Yeah. So we all had, you know, hopefully most of us have had, you know, those couple of teachers that made all the difference in terms of the inspiration they provided, yeah. and the vision and like perspective. Um, but these trends, I, I mean, you said that at all you think the role of teachers will remain. Um, but there are two, two trends, it seems like. One is automating the routine. Another one is it's becoming easier to now access like the 
superstars in their fields. So for example, yeah. if uh, there's an incredible teacher of any particular field or even a general third grade, excellent, you know, the best, you know, yeah. that there is, technology actually amplifies the super superstar phenomenon too, potentially. Right. So I'm just really curious, uh, you know, I can totally see how there's definitely still a human role, but like, just so we get a little bit more clear on like, what do you specifically see a teacher doing in the education world of the future? Right. So, um, so I think that's a, that's a great point. So I think in terms of access to, let's say, the superstar teacher or kind of taped lectures by, the, by this particular professor or something like that, um, I don't think that's necessarily enough, right? Like, so the idea of, hey, if I could just find the best math textbook or the best math professor, record that person, and make every student watch that lecture, every, our, all our math learning issues would be solved. Like, I think that that is not going to happen. And I, I don't believe that that is the, the issue. Now, I do think it's, you know, could there be better math curriculum that could be put in front of some students? Yes, I do think that that, that is there. But I think what's more important is kind of making sure that students are in their uh, proximal learning zone, which means they're not getting too challenged so that they get frustrated and they give up and think that they're not able to accomplish something. They're not finding something too easy that they lose interest and they kind of get bored. And so what I think the role of uh, a teacher is, is when students are in that zone, uh, is to make sure that they're feeling engaged, they're feeling inspired. If they have questions, uh, they're able to kind of communicate <laughs> either with the teacher or with their peers. Um, and it's not only once when they're having an issue. I think it's also once they've mastered something. Because the best way, or one of the best ways to demonstrate that you've actually learned something is to teach it to someone else. And so uh, I think one of the things that I see a lot of schools doing now that wasn't necessarily there probably when you, know, you and I went to school was, you know, we were very much used to the teachers sitting in front of the classroom uh, lecturing at us and the idea of like one of your fellow students going up there and explaining kind of how a solution happened that that didn't happen at that time and now there's a lot more of that happening and so I think having that uh, teacher there to kind of be that support for the student uh, is very very important um, and I think uh, here's a study that uh, this is from one of our other portfolio companies that I, I think kind of highlights this so uh, there's a company called Panorama Education in our portfolio. And what they focus on is um, uh, kind of a lot of the non-academic data and gathering those data points uh, and presenting that to educators. And all of these data points have been shown in academic research to have a direct impact on student or teacher outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things is how much trust is there between the teacher and the student, right? And so this was a small study that they did with a small sample size, but what they found is revealing just five things that students and teachers have in common, uh, especially if the students and teachers don't look like each other. So, and this has nothing to do with school, so things like, hey, we both like basketball, or our favorite comic book superhero is Wolverine or something mm -hmm. like that, uh, develops uh, trust both from the student side and from the teacher side, and that was able to significantly uh, decrease the achievement gap between those students in that classroom. So fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So again, like building on what you said, so the role of the teacher is one thing, and then it's the role of the peers actually. Correct. Um, you know, the students learning from each other, um, 
and even in college level, you know, you don't just get your like a job in finance because you studied finance. You are really helped by people who got that job the year before Absolutely. helping you and so forth. That's why I, I can't help but think, you know, whether it's let's say history or organic chemistry, there's so much that you know with animation and visuals and like you know there's like a lot of excitement that yeah. can be delivered through technology Absolutely. that's hard for a human to deploy, like perform yeah. to that level all the time but you do definitely see like an ongoing role of the people and like supporting each other and learning together so you don't see that kind of no because i think so i think like in the way that you're describing so um, there are certainly very interesting companies right now that are doing uh, things with, hey, if I'm learning the anatomy of a heart, rather than just talking about it, like, let's put on 3D glasses, let's like look at a heart, you can see it beating in front of you. Uh, let's not only talk about like the four chambers, let's travel through the four chambers so you can truly understand like, how does blood flow? Like, what does a heart look like? And everything like that. Um, so I think that's fantastic, right? Um, but when it comes to, let's say kind of, pushing the boundary of what we understand now, right? Um, and it's, it's what you're talking about, which is like, who's in the field right now? What are the latest uh, kind of procedures that cardiovascular surgeons are using right now? Kind of, what's the limitations of actually what we can, you know, display within a 3D model or some type of experience for students? And how do you think about that? And um, you know, or, or you can take it from, okay, now we have a solid understanding of the facts here, like I know how to do this type of procedure, but let's go into ethics of, should you perform this surgery? Should you not perform this type of surgery? Like that's not something that I think will necessarily be exclusively delivered by an education technology platform. I do think that education technology could help that mm -hmm. because you're not gonna be limited to, let's say, surgeons just interacting with other folks that are in their own hospital. Like, you could have surgeons in the US, talk to surgeons in Africa, to India, to all over the country, right? And, and share best practices. But what I view like kind of one of the greatest things that a, a teacher can do is, you know, kind of the Socrative uh, instructional methodology, which is kind of make sure that folks are having an engaging discussion, they're asking the questions, they're not accepting like surface level kind of answers and they're going deeper and saying, well, why do you think that? Why do you think that? And why do you think that? And getting like, you know, five, eight layers deep so you're truly uncovering like kind of what's motivating what uh, each person's kind of bringing up as their beliefs. Got it, interesting. So yeah. in a way, going away from the routine we're trying to do one size fits all, making it a lot more experiential. Correct. And having the teacher be more somebody that brings the class to life and Correct. gets them to be contributors rather than passive yeah. participants. I'll, um, so I'll, I'll list another, so this is another uh, company in our portfolio that I thought did this absolutely phenomenally, or allowed teachers to do this phenomenally, was a company called Musella. <laughs> and so they're a literacy company. Uh, what they do is um, they take articles uh, and other types of um, documents such as primary source documents like uh, the I Have a Dream speech or the Declaration of Independence and they rewrite that at multiple reading levels. Um, and so, for example, when the presidential election was happening, right, uh, they allowed kind of students within elementary school and middle school to kind of understand like what's going on in this election, like what's happening, right? And 
for the first time, like students were able to kind of consume content, discuss that, uh, and then also they held uh, the country's largest K through 12 election, where uh, students were not only um, kind of reading about this, but then able to actually vote. And the teacher's role uh, with that type of platform is, yeah, Newzella allowed them to kind of uh, introduce that material, have that discussion, conduct the election, but then the teacher was involved in kind of, how do you feel about this? Like, what do you think about like kind of what's going on in your state if you were the same opinion, if you were a different opinion? And so kind of engaging in that type of dialogue, I think, is some of the richest learning that you can have. And I think EdTech and Newzella played a you know, critical role in setting that up for the teacher and allowing the teacher to engage with those students on that deeper level. Right. Um, and if Newzella hadn't been there, then some of the students who are reading below grade level might not have been able to kind of participate in that type of discussion, right? So that's where I see like kind of EdTech's role is like really setting up the teacher to kind of be able to focus on the, the things that matter the most, okay. right? Awesome, that's a great example. And yeah. just so uh, everybody has a good kind of an overview of what kind of companies are out there. So you talked about the different stages of education. Correct. But also in terms of, okay, the different types of vendors. So in that tech space, broadly speaking, what are the main like players? Like what are the key approaches? So you mentioned a couple of examples, but if you had to group them together, you know, like one being, okay, software yeah. solution providers, but what are the main kind of players? So I, I think it actually aligns with kind of how we view the okay. four sectors of the education space. So kind of the way that we bucket education is in those four sectors. Okay. And we see folks that are initially, at least at the early stage, very focused on one of those sectors. I think there are certainly exceptions to that rules. Like there's some uh, LMS companies that are uh, kind of trying to go after K-12, higher ed, and uh, kind of corporate at the same time. Um, but for the most part, we'll actually see a company that's saying, hey, we're really focused on the early, early learning sector. We're really focused on K-12. Now, I think within each of those sectors, you do have folks that are selling directly to the school. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of an institutional or B2B type of in, uh, business model. I also think you have direct-to-consumer business models. Um, and that applies across all four uh, of those sectors. Um, I would say kind of uh, one of the trends tends to be that uh, a lot of the ed tech companies are software-based. Uh, so some type of recurring revenue model uh, as opposed to hardware-based companies. I think there are uh, a fair number of companies uh, that are starting to kind of emerge that are focused on hardware. And you know, kind of one of the areas where uh, hardware is, is certainly being introduced is um, in the K-12 kind of coding sector where uh, you'll have kind of computer kits or robots or things like that that students are not only interacting with software kind of uh, on a computer but also then programming something that kind of comes to life and they're seeing how how this kind of uh, code base manifests in some type of hardware solution so okay yeah all right cool and uh, what are the biggest particular challenges for startups in the education space and also the flip side for investors in the educational space. So as opposed to other areas, yeah. what, what are really like particular challenges to this field? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with the investor side first. Um, so from the investor side, I think uh, if you look at, let's say, consumer tech, um, kind of there's been this trend of some of the most successful consumer tech companies 
giving away their product for free and then collecting data uh, on the user base and then either advertising against that user base or uh, reselling that data uh, so that others can have insights on those users' preferences, right? Um, both of those models, especially in K-12 and early learning, are very illegal. <laughs> you can't do that kind of thing with student data. There's a lot of student data privacy rules. Um, and so I think from an investor's perspective, um, kind of recognizing that some of the, I guess, traditional uh, models that have been backed in other types of companies uh, when it came to venture-backed companies, they don't apply to necessarily ed tech. So um, I think that's one thing that uh, we pride ourselves on as kind of niche-focused investors, meaning ed tech-focused investors, where uh, we understand that. We understand kind of how purchasing decisions happen, um, kind of how folks think about student data privacy, and that's something that, uh, you know, kind of is one of the reasons why we believe some of our entrepreneurs are very excited to, to work with us because we bring that kind of deeper layer understanding of that. So I'd say that's one big challenge from. Um, the second, I would say from the, uh, let's say the entrepreneur side, um, I would say is there's, it, it's, a, it's the opposite of that, which is like a lot of folks will start off with a freemium strategy uh, where it's, hey, I'm going to give away this product for free, and then I'm going to uh, eventually charge for this product, right? I think the, one of the issues that we've seen is uh, that's a very difficult strategy to implement in education because I think uh, folks underestimate kind of how large the actual freemium user base has to be. Um, and there's an overestimation also on how much of how many of those freemium users will convert into premium users. So if you are, you know, kind of, if you compound those together, it can have real impacts like on, on company outcomes. That being said, we are we're open to investing in and have invested in the freemium business model. Um, but it just I think it takes a lot more work than entrepreneurs initially think that it might. Yeah. Interesting. And um, given also. It was interesting, the first example you gave of all the portfolio companies you have was the Tinker Garden. Yeah. Um, and that one is actually, from your brief description of it and what I read about it online, it's, kind of, it's very much experiential. Correct. So I'm sure they have great technology powering what they do. Um, because a lot of times when people think about ed tech, let's say someone who's already graduated, they think of, oh, like, it's, is it like online learning or yeah. is it just like, you know, better apps for people in schools. Right. Um, but like as we were talking about, as things get more digitized um, and automated for the routine and the human interaction becomes like a more elevated, something that there's more time for, do you see like ed tech also moving into like its technology, but actually leading to more and more experiential? Because for me personally, and obviously what we're all about at Ivy is, you know, the, one of the most important parts of a great education is, you know, the people you meet, and the things you learn through doing, yeah, yeah, experiencing things together. So, just curious, your take on this? I think that's a hundred and ten percent, like kind of uh, the the hope and kind of the dream of kind of what education technology allows uh, students to do and educators to do. Right? Um, I think that. Tinker Garden is a, is a great example of a company that's doing that within the ed tech space. Um, I think if I, you know, pre all of this ed tech stuff happening, if I think about personally, like one of the most 
memorable experiences for myself, uh, you know, growing up was um, I had the chance to kind of part of my life. I grew up uh, in Italy because my dad traveled a lot for work, and I remember like kind of being so close to. Uh, Rome, uh, we were living in Milan at the time, kind of one of the things that the schools did there was we were not only learning about the Roman Empire, uh, but then we actually got to go there, um, you know, and visit. And so you're not only talking about the Colosseum, but you're actually learning about the Colosseum. And kind of one of my, that the humanities teacher that I had at that time, he's one of my favorite professors because not only did he create that type of experiential uh, learning experience for us. He, you know, he went above and beyond. This is not something that the school normally did. Like, he took time out. He got permission from all the parents, um, and really was like, I think, a great example of, a, of, of a, how a teacher is like inspired to do this. And then I remember the second thing that he did with this was, um, if you've ever played that game Risk, yeah. um, he had the entire grade playing Risk, where you were all on teams, you're all playing Risk, and he's like, you know, it's one thing to to read about like how empires are created, right? Like you can read about these wars, you can read about all these deals that were made. He's like, now this is not gonna be, you know, exactly like what it was like to create the Roman Empire, but you guys are in teams and we're gonna play risk the entire grade. No rules in terms of when deals can get made and you know, whether you have to stick to your deal or not and go out and see and play and you know, kind of see what happens, right? There's the only rule was all, all decisions had to be made at one time during the week. And these types of, experiences, I think you hear about uh, a lot of very committed, dedicated educators that are trying to create this. Um, you know, in the case of New Zella, uh, I, I know a lot of folks that are my friends that are teachers or principals now. Some of the most ambitious educators would actually try to do this themselves. Like they would, they recognize that, hey, some of my students are not reading on grade level. I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna try to take this article and I'm gonna rewrite it so that they can read it. Well, you can do that for a week, maybe a month, you know, maybe even one school year, but after that it becomes unmanageable, right? Like how do you continue to do that type of thing? And so what EdTech, like companies like Newzella have done is kind of taken that burden off of the teacher so that they can focus on that experience and kind of that dialogue that, that students have. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great example. So um, to help us wrap up, what, what are some ways in which the Ivy community can support you and Owl Ventures and your endeavors? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So I'd say first and foremost, anybody that's maybe thinking about starting an ed tech company or has that entrepreneurial bug in them, um, I think this is one of the most exciting times to be an ed tech entrepreneur. Um, and so I would just say, don't be afraid, like kind of go for it, uh, pursue that dream. Um, there's a lot of wonderful, you know, funders, there's a lot of wonderful accelerators around the uh, country. Uh, in fact, YC, like kind of one of the only dedicated tracks that they have is uh, in the education sector. And so like kind of, uh, that's a fantastic example of how education entrepreneurs can get um, supported. You know, if you're not quite at the stage where you wanna go and, um, you know, start an ed tech company, uh, I would say consider like joining one, right? Uh, all of the OWL portfolio companies are hiring. Um, I'm sure Ivy's hiring. <laughs> um, but uh, if, if you're thinking about kind of what's next and you wanna do something where, you know, you can feel an impact, you feel part of something that's mission driven um, and that has like phenomenal opportunity to create an amazing and exciting company. I think ed tech is something that we've noticed a lot of people are, are getting attracted to and so, uh, you know, 
take a look at Alice companies, take a look at other ed tech companies. And then finally, if it's not necessarily in a professional way, I think there's a lot of volunteer opportunities, mentor opportunities, or giving opportunities where Ivy members could be uh, tremendously helpful. So even though like my main focus and a lot of my like primary career is focused on education and education technology, uh, for example, I sit on the board of U Aspire, which is a nonprofit uh, that helps students from middle-income and low-income backgrounds navigate the financial aid process, right? And, um, you know, U Aspire is looking for board members that I think many of the Ivy community would be great for. I think there's several other nonprofits out there that are looking for board members. So get involved in some way like that or actually be a mentor to a student at the high school that's, that's close to you and help them navigate that financial aid process. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll definitely spread the word. Those are really good ideas. So yeah. we'll take you up on it. All right. Uh, really, thank you for being here. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. All right. Until next time we meet. Yeah, thank take you. Care. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.